You are listening to Equip Campus Ministries. Your kingdom come. We're studying the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. Lord's Prayer. And we come up to this point. We've learned that addressing God as the king of the universe and as a father is important. It's how Jesus tells us to pray. And again, I guess, especially if you're here for the first time, um, this is the King Jesus. This is the Savior Jesus, whom his disciples asked, teach us something. And it was, teach us how to pray. And so he does. He doesn't give a parable. He doesn't say, uh, he doesn't rebuke them. He, in fact, teaches them. And so we're studying it. And to put it lightly, it's extremely important that you learn, that we learn how to pray rightly as Christians. And so the second uh, imperative, or the second request, I mean, um, that Jesus has, first it's uh, our Father who art in heaven is the address, hallowed be your name, is the first request he makes, that your name be hallowed, to be glorified, we talked about last week. And the very next thing he says is your kingdom come. And this language of kingdom coming is really, really prevalent in the scriptures. I don't know how many times the kingdom language is in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it's at least or about 160 times the discussion of the word about kingdom occurs. 126 or so of those are in the Gospels alone, talking about kingdom, 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 126 times, another 34 or so times in the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the epistle, dies off a little bit for certain reasons. So it's a really big deal. This whole kingdom language. If I were to start speaking in uh, Chinese, Mandarin is my second language um, growing up. Just kidding, I don't know any other language. It would be awesome, though. If I were to start speaking in Chinese right now, uh, you wouldn't understand anything. If I even just use one Chinese word many times as my imperative or as my point, you would be lost. And I think it's similar to the name, the word kingdom. Nobody knows what kingdom means. Uh, and it is all over the gospel. So I'm going to read really quickly through a bunch. There's two slides that we're just going to read. This is obviously a sample out of 126 or 160 or so. But here's a bunch of times our kingdom is talking about. It's talked about. Uh, Matthew 3, 2. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was imperative Jesus gave. The reason you're supposed to repent is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. He went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom. That was what he proclaimed. This is what Jesus proclaimed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But if it is by the spirit of God, this is Jesus talking, if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, which is a rhetorical question to saying, yes, it is by the spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's arrived, he says. Mark 1.15 The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled and God's kingdom is at hand. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. That's when he sends out the apostles. And what he sent them out to proclaim wasn't the good news of the gospel in this phrase. wasn't the good news that Jesus is going to die for your sins. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. It goes on. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Acts 28, 30. Paul welcomed all who came to him, 
proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What he was proclaiming was the kingdom of God. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not enter the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Full stop. That's that's just a few. And one reason I just do that is because both, one, there's a lot more that came from, and two, as you read and hear uh, those passages, spoken from Jesus, spoken from Paul, about Paul, a big deal is made of the kingdom, and is there a grid in your minds, especially if you're a Christian right now, to understand what that is? What is the kingdom? So, that's more or less what we're going to try and answer. Well, I'm going to try and answer for in a few minutes here. So, at least one thing it tells us is God is a king who reigns. Having a kingdom, in some simple sense, would be something like a territory or an area over which your rule extends, in, in an earthly sense, at least, right? The kingdom of the United States has borders. The kingdom of Rome had a certain area in which their rule reigned, and if you came up against another nation, those rules, those laws wouldn't apply. It would be a different people. So there's a reigning going on in which those laws are being implemented, being enforced. And at the least, so we understand that God is Father, he also is a king who has a kingdom. He reigns as king. Now, there is a few different ways. We talked about this ways this way a little bit last week. There's at least a couple different ways when you talk about God reigning uh, over his kingdom. Uh, there's a couple ways to understand that. One is that he's sovereign, that he has providential reign over all things. That's one way. Uh, Abraham Kuyper, this is on the screen, said this. He's an old theologian, dead one <coughs> on this earth. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of human uh, existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's not a single square inch in all of the cosmos in which Jesus, who is sovereign over all, he's the sovereign, he's the king over all things, that he doesn't cry, that's mine. Nothing in all of reality exists. Other, someone else has said, there's not one maverick molecule in all the cosmos. Not a single maverick molecule is floating about that isn't under the reigning control, providential rule of King Jesus. And this is right. Things like Proverbs 16.33 on the screen. The lot or the die is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot's cast in the lap, but whatever it lands on is actually from the Lord, Proverbs 16.33 says. So even in Vegas, there isn't actually such a thing as luck, you could conclude from a verse like that. Even in Vegas. <laughs> Even though it looks like it, there's no such thing as luck. There's no God luck who is, who is providential. Let luck be with you. Good luck, right? As a friend once said to me, oh, you mean blessings from a pagan God. Yeah. What? That's where the idea of luck comes from. It's some kind of power. It doesn't exist if, if Proverbs 13 or 16.33 is true. So this is true. Not a single square inch. We talked about that actually in my small group last week. And if you want to talk more about that specifically, I would very much love to. There's some... Uh, unfamiliar aspects of things like that to many people. I think to most of us who have grown up in the Midwest. Um, But not all things are under God's complete and final reign at the present in another sense. Not all things 
in one sense, are completely under his reign. So Hebrews 2.8 on the screen says things like this. God put everything in subjection under his feet, under Jesus' feet. And he qualifies it. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So Hebrews 2 makes this statement that, well, yes, this would be a really loose summary, yes, Jesus has absolute sovereignty, absolute control over everything, and Hebrews 2 says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So there's a sense, evil still remains, right? Tears are still shed. Sin still happens. There is a very real sense in which the will of God is not being fully done all the time on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus is clearly, I would argue, obviously, teaching something more than what we're asking for in this prayer. And don't, don't forget, your kingdom come is a request. Lord, let your kingdom come. What we're asking for is not, Lord, may your providential rule over all the lots, over all the dies in Vegas, may your providential rule be true in all places at all times. That's already the case. We don't ask for such things. It's clearly the case, and there's a lot of scripture you could go to that. He's not telling us to ask for that, because it's true already. What we're asking for is something else. When you ask for in your prayers, and you should ask for, uh, Lord, may your kingdom come, is something to take place that isn't fully taking place. As a starting rule, right? Lord, may your kingdom come. If the kingdom, whatever that means, is already completely here, why would you ask for it? You wouldn't. So you're asking, Lord, may your kingdom come, may something take place that isn't currently fully taking place right now, or at least fully. So what is it? Should be the question. What does it mean to ask God that his kingdom come? I split the answer as far as I can see it. And this is dangerous, by the way. We have a bunch of barrage of scriptures tonight, a few more than I would like in a sense that you know, I could throw a bunch of scripture on the screen and you think, oh, he's biblical because he had a bunch of scripture. Well, maybe. There's plenty of bad, Bible, uh, bad books out there written by professing Christians that quote scripture like crazy that aren't teaching the Bible. So that's a tricky thing. It's a lot harder to see that than the satanic guy standing up and saying, don't believe the Bible. That's obvious. Someone who quotes scripture but isn't treating it well. So anyways, this is, this is tricky. We have a bunch of scripture. But here's my, my main thrust. Two main categories of how do you understand the nature of God's kingdom when we're asking for God's kingdom to come. There's an internal reign, the kingdom, Christ ruling, God ruling, and an external reign. The internal reign is first, foremost, it's primary. We are asking, very simply put, for souls to be brought from one kingdom to another kingdom. May your kingdom come is asking God, Lord, bring souls from one kingdom to a new kingdom. We're not merely asking for the creation of a kingdom. May your kingdom come, bring a kingdom in. We're not merely asking for a new kingdom, which we'll continue to define. We're not merely asking for a kingdom creation of a new one, but the replacing of one. That's what we're asking. I want souls to be brought from one kingdom to another. I want my eternal, eternally existing roommate, eternally existing classmate, that you should be pleading for the Lord a heart for 
when you look upon a human, instead of the dull apathy we often experience, I often experience, of there's another person, I don't want to talk to that person because I'm tired, right? I experience that often. What I'm actually seeing is an eternal being for whom there will be no end, ever. They're actually immortal in one sense. That's what I'm seeing. That's who I'm talking to. And as C.S. Lewis says, they're, they're either headed towards eternal... Dis- uh, I don't remember how Lewis says it. <laughs> remember how Paul says that they're either headed towards eternal destruction or eternal ever-increasing joy in the presence of God. There's two directions the Bible clearly teaches. And so the only reason that you don't feel, we don't feel, I don't feel, a, a more often passion, fire, concern for that reality is because we just don't believe it enough. It's just the reality. When you see someone standing on the tracks and the train's coming, for you to say, nah, and they don't see it coming, right? Their back is, back's to the train. For you to go, yeah, they'll probably get it out of the way. It'll probably, it'll probably happen. Clearly means you don't care about them, right? I mean, there's just no other answer. You just don't care enough. And this is our problem. This is a fundamental problem we have in our hearts. We just don't care. So this is what we're talking about. There's two kingdoms that exist. And what we're asking God is not merely let your kingdom come, but you actually would take eternally existing beings that are bearing your image, every single one of them, your worst enemy, the friend who stabbed you in the back, the person you like the most, every single one of them is headed to one place or the other. And our prayer is, Lord, bring your kingdom to them, transfer them. And so I say things, I say that for things like this, one verse, Colossians 1, 13. This is a description of what happens to a Christian. It's on the screen, I think. Colossians 1.13 says, God, he has delivered us, as he's talking to Christians, Christ followers, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the way you get into the kingdom of his beloved son is that God transfers you there. There's a transfer happening. This is why I say there's two kingdoms. There's a domain of darkness, a kingdom of darkness in which we reside, in which our hearts live and thrive in, apart from Jesus. And what God does to Christians, sovereignly, by pure grace, he transfers us. How does he do that? He forgives our sins. That's how. You're transferred into a new kingdom by being forgiven your sins. We have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So this is the, the center it's the center of the gospel. This is the center of what it means for God's kingdom to come, is that you would ask for God to save. You would ask, not only for yourself, of course, if you don't know him, you would ask for him to save others. May your kingdom come. May you transfer people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So there's always darkness or light. And as you think through these things, I would encourage, you can never get away from this basic sort of logic. There's either darkness or light. There's either truth or falsehood. At the end of the day, And so we're either following orders uh, of one kingdom or another. It's not an option if you're in a kingdom. We're always following orders. We're always under a rule and a reign of someone or something. Always. This is always the case for us as human beings. We're subjects to one kingdom or another. We're obeying one king or another. So when Jesus says things like, you can't serve two masters. You'll either love one or hate the other. You can't serve God and serve money. You can't be devoted and give your life to self-preservation, and be devoted to God at the same time. They simply won't mix. They're like water and oil. It's just impossible. You'll be a traitor to one. It's a scary thought. 
to be a traitor to God. It's a scary thought to have you come up to the Lord of all creation someday and say, Lord, Lord, this is Jesus. Didn't we remember we did all these things? Why should I let you in? We did all these things. We cast out demons. We did many mighty works in your name. Thank you, Jesus. Very, very Christian talk. Extremely. Who's, who's cast out? I've asked that when I read that. Who's ever cast a demon out before? Right? That somebody's going to get to heaven and Jesus responds and says, away from me. I never knew you. Away into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the worst thing. And everybody in that parable of Jesus and Matthew is, thinks they love him. They think they're a Christian. And Jesus says, I never knew you. So it's always one or the other. It's, it's all or nothing if you're a Christian. It's all or nothing that you, as Matt Reagan in the video said, devote your major with other people in mind. Because that's what the gospel does to you. Prior to the gospel, you don't love people. It's just the basic reality. You don't love people, you love yourself. If you get saved and you come to actually experience the grace of God, you start to actually love people in a way you've never experienced. Man, I want to lay my life down. I want to serve my brothers and sisters. I want to become a nurse so that. I want to become an engineer so that. That's so good. I mean, the, the experience of that is so much better, too, than the single-minded, self-focused sort of thing of just me, me, me. Why do I get my major in this amount of money or whatever? So, in short, we're asking God to save sinners from eternal damnation. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. It's not on the screen. We're asking God to save sinners from eternal damnation and save them to himself. In short, Father in heaven, bring your kingdom. Forgive us. Forgive others and recreate others to be citizens of your kingdom. Citizens who love to obey your rule. The citizen of a kingdom that loves their king is the citizen who obeys their king's commands. That's what you do. If you love your king, you give your life for your king. We're, a bit, we're at a bit of a disadvantage here, I would argue, um, as Americans, that we don't have any kind of central monarchy. C.S. Lewis argues this elsewhere, that as British, they still have the, a, a, a ceremonial monarchy. right? They got the queen, and it's like huge over there. And even Americans tune in for the wedding of princess whomever, right? And... Uh, prince, I guess, is only princesses marry in. Uh, and we're a bit of a disadvantage because we've lost that central uh, reminder that we do actually live in a kingdom. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do is kind of our natural inclinations as, as humans. So, Father, do that. Create citizens that love to follow the king's command, that actually do it. So a couple implications. One, the world is full of rebels. So if you're interacting with people, one, one way to understand someone who isn't a citizen, who isn't in the kingdom of God, is a rebel. They're a traitor. That's what I was. That's what I, uh, at heart, I was a child of wrath. I was a rebel rebelling against the king. And so their proper allegiance belongs to God, but they rebel. That's what the world is full of. And then second, if you love me, Jesus says, you obey my commandments, John 14. That's not much good. <laughs> if you love me, what will you do? You'll obey what I say. And so one thing we just have to do, we have to immerse. This is the, the classic application. Read the Bible. Here's the application. Read the Bible. It's not the most helpful application sometimes. It's not very specific. But in this case, if you're going to know what Jesus commanded as a king, he says, if you love me, if you actually love me, you want to you show how you actually love me, apart from all your words, apart from your equip. Uh, college ministry thing, you're a Christian, you do the Bible studies, apart from all that stuff that some think will get them entrance into heaven and Jesus will say, away from me. 
That stuff might be worthless. You might be in grave danger right now. You sitting right here, not your neighbor. You might be in grave danger because you're using what's happening right now as your justification, as your righteousness. You're doing Christian stuff. You might even enjoy it. Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commandments. So how do you know Jesus' commandments? Preeminently, it's right here. So if you obey his commandments, and if you want to obey his commandments, it, it has to transfer into reading his commandments, pleading, meditating, studying. It just shows, I mean, it's at least very dangerous to you that if you just barely read the Bible, or it's only when you have to, or it's five minutes only ever at a time, or whatever, it just shows you're not terribly interested in knowing what your king wants. And that's a universal principle. You don't read your textbook, probably going to fail, depending on the class. <laughs> Plenty of classes that's not true for, unfortunately. Plenty of you are just throwing money down the tube going to various classes. But in the classes that are hard, <laughs> in the majors that are worth your money and what you're paying for them, you don't read the textbook. It's a ridiculous tangent. You don't read the textbook, you're, uh, you're probably going to fail. If you don't read the textbook, it shows you're not terribly interested in passing the class, right? It's just, that's how it works. So you got to read. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. So the creation of God's kingdom within us, it says the internal kingdom means, is the means, sorry, by which he's creating the external kingdom, the external reign that he has. It's the primary means, I would argue, that he's creating the external kingdom. So one quick thing to say here is it's tempting to think uh, of everything I just said above about the creation and the internal stuff, we put this label spiritual. It's tempting and maybe in some sense proper, but it's tempting to think that's spiritual stuff. There's stuff happening that I can't see and it's not material. My heart <laughs> is a euphemism for the internal soul, the center of you, right? All this stuff. It's tempting to say that's spiritual and it's tempting and mistaken as Christians then to conclude spiritual is sort of basically unreal. It's not really a thing. So all this internal stuff is just happening in some ethereal place. But spiritual in the Bible and we, when we use that language, isn't meaning not real things. When we ask for God's kingdom to come, we are asking for his kingdom to come, not for us to leave. Lord, may your kingdom descend, is a word you could use that I'll say why in a moment. So how do those things connect? In other words... The good news is not about merely getting saved, the gospel of the kingdom. It's not merely about getting saved and then waiting to be whisked off to heaven land somewhere to, to float around with God for all of eternity. That's not primarily what the good news is about. I grew up thinking that. It was just sort of the natural assumption. I don't know if I was taught it. I'm going to go float up with God for all of eternity. And quite literally, whatever you think happens after death, the idea certainly was, I will exit. Right? I will go away and be with God. Now, there is a thing called the intermediate state. The intermediate state, when you die, your body is separated from your soul and your body rots in the ground. Your soul does go away in a very real sense and, and resides with the Lord. But the theological term we give that is intermediate. It's in between. And so it's intermediate for a reason because it's not primary. It's not final. What we pray for in the Lord's Prayer for the reign of God's kingdom is for it to come. And what we don't look for it is going to spend and float around with God for all of eternity on earth as it is in heaven. Father, may your kingdom come on earth 
as it currently resides in heaven. So in other words, there is a very much this worldly application of this prayer. It's not just asking that people would be saved. And that's about it. It just exists in this little raindrop truth. People get saved. And what's around it, I have no idea. What's around it is this huge foundational creational theology that God is going to come back. In other words, there is an end or direction that history is heading. Let me just read a couple of verses to give some context. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13 says this. This is Peter saying, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What we're waiting for and what we're hastening, I would probably argue, in part, is because we're asking for it. We're called to ask for it, as Jesus says, may your kingdom come. Is a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. In which God's resurrected, glorified church, his bride, his people, will live. Not up with God in cloud land, but on a new earth with a new heavens. God's going to recreate everything. There's a huge, long Isaiah, uh, or uh, uh, prophetic background to this that you can dive into, but I'll give you one verse. It's a whole bunch in Isaiah. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3 says this. This is John the Revelator. He sees, he's in, he's in a vision. He sees something that God says is going to take place. He says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So there's a coming. The new Jerusalem is going to come onto earth. God's going to reside with his people. It goes on to talk about how there won't be any need of sun and stars anymore because God will be his light and all this, this craziness that I, I don't fully understand. But apparently there will be no more sun. There's a new heavens, a new earth, and God's going to dwell on earth. And this is quite something. So the external reign is simply the applied eventuality that there's an end and a direction of all of history that when we pray for it, it's not merely God save my classmate. Lord, may your kingdom come in the hearts of people. It is first, I would argue, first foremost that the application of that is that, Lord, may your kingdom come. And so a couple things. Knowing and believing this does a few things to us. One, it saves us from the escapism that I'm talking about. You have to strive to believe this, but it saves you from the escapism that much of us do believe in. I'm going to go up to heaven someday. And we could talk about that more. There's truth to that. Like I said, Jesus is the, cross, the thief on the cross. You'll be with me in paradise. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. But this thinking and believing that saves us from escapism, that we're going to go somewhere finally and get away from everything. Two, it causes us, should cause us to value the body as we ought. To take delight in God's creation. 
This is God's world. That's a perfect song. I don't think I was intentional. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. The rocks, the trees, the birds, the bees, they sing to me, they speak to me everywhere. That's a very, very close, almost quotation of scripture that God shines forth in everything. It's actually declaring his glory even in the grass. And we're meant to see it, and it's meant to be good. But when we have this sort of escapism in our head that we're going to go away someday, it, I would, I would say, makes it a lot more difficult for you to take the proper kind of delight that you're meant to in creation, in your body, not to mention properly using your body, viewing it rightly, viewing marriage rightly. God made this. Someone prayed earlier. He didn't just make us uh, eyeballs floating in uh, space. Presumably he could have, beholding the glory of God for all of eternity. Right? Presumably, let's say for the sake of argument, he could do that. And we just see him like the angels in some sense. They just gaze upon him. Constant interaction. He didn't do it that way. He actually made this world. C.S. Lewis says, don't try and be more spiritual than God. He created matter. It was his idea. He liked it. It's a really old heresy that got into the Christian church that we have a natural negative view of our bodies. We're infected with sin, but our bodies are not the sin. The world is God's world. So I think it protects us from that. You ought to value your body rightly. You ought to see it as the way God calls you to see it, use it as he calls you to use it, and you ought to take more delight. Your delight in the created world should be increasing as a Christian, not decreasing as some sort of ascetic I just have to deny everything all the time. It's like a 24-7 fast from enjoyment, right? I don't want to have steak. I don't, that's too expensive. Or I don't want to eat the nice food. I'll eat the bread and water all the time because, because God. And he's looking up there saying, what are you doing? I made a bajillion flavors for you to experience me. It's a, it's a shadow. Our taste, they're just a shadow. It just gives us a taste, no pun intended, of who God is. But when you, when you actually delight in honey, Right? What it should do in your soul, one thing should happen, because you read the scriptures, you go, this is so good. My two-year-old just wants honey all the time now. I put honey on my toes. Huh? Me, me. Because he tastes the goodness and the sweetness of honey, which God made, and he wants it. And so what should happen, because the scripture says, is, man, that is so sweet to my tongue, like God is sweet to my soul. It's telling you, actually literally telling you something about who God is in the experience of honey. It may be small in a sense, but he designed it that way. And then you're meant to go, more, I want more. I want more than the taste of honey. God is sweet. God is good. The hurricane is meant to tell you something about the, the fearful power of God. He made the stuff. And it will be with us for all of eternity. Thank the Lord. I like honey. Honey will exist. The new heavens, the new earth. I can't find a verse that says that, but based on a lot of stuff, pretty sure honey is going to exist for all of eternity, and it will be perfect. So value it. Take delight in it. You can make it your God. You can be all about just eating all the time. You can be led by your stomach. You can mess this up. But fundamentally, you're meant to give God glory. Three, uh, implication of that stuff. Uh, it's meant to give you a proper and active view. Well, this is an implication. <laughs> it's meant to do this. I think this necessarily follows. It gives us a proper and active view of politics and the world around us. I might come out of left field to you. 
thinking that when you ask God's kingdom come, that you're not merely talking about a personal, private thing that happens in your heart. You're talking about, ultimately, the conquest of all of the world by the blood of the Lamb. It's going to happen someday. It's not going to be with a sword, like Muhammad originally. It's going to be with a cross, which means dying for others. In Jesus' case, literally, for our sins. And he calls us to lay our lives down, bear your crosses, and follow me. And it's a world conquest. And so, stuff happening in the world, if you're not aware, actually is important for you to be aware of, increasingly, because the gospel is the only answer. All of the other world views, all of the other politics, all of the other policies, all other propositions, all presidents, by and large, I shouldn't say all of them, almost all the time, aren't using the gospel as the answer. They're not using and seeing the kingdom as the answer to change. So if you want to change rape culture on SDSU campus, if you haven't read the Collegiate, almost the whole paper is about rape, rape culture, um, which I don't think exists at SDSU, but there's supposedly a rape culture on university campuses. Let's just say there is. If you want to change that, the answer is be saved. Repent of your sin, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the only answer. You have to be recreated. A man who wants to sexually assault a woman needs a new heart. He needs to be forgiven. That's how. And ultimately, it's the only, it's the only way. Everything else is a band-aid. Everything else is a band-aid. We'll do classes. You have to watch a six-minute educational video about how you shouldn't sexually assault women. Really? Oh, that's helpful. I was confused before. I thought I was supposed to, right? Oh, I just get kind of frustrated that that garbage that thinks it's actually solving problems. And people might be well-intentioned. Don't get me wrong if you're involved with anything like that. Good intentions can be good, but the actual answer is the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, in closing, this is a grand request. So this is a request. All of this prayer, almost all this prayer is petitioning the Lord. Do this, do this, do this. Lord, may your kingdom come. This is a huge request. And not only are we asking for an end of all of eternity, that his kingdom would come, we're called to be a part of that in that direction. You're called to be a part of it when Jesus says, pray for this. We're called to pray, pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're called to petition the Lord to ultimately change the world in all of its entirety. (laughs) That's a big prayer. So all cultures, all nations, all political structures, all education, all aspects of every human and natural affair, we are to ask your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So put it a different way, this isn't a puny request. And I fear much of the time, I know it's true for me, much of the time our prayers are just puny. They're just these small little things, help, help grandma's hip heal, you know, Show yourself. This is a vague sense. We so often have puny prayers, and this is clearly the opposite of a puny, tiny little prayer. May your kingdom come. And so this is just life. It's huge. It's life-changing. And this is how we're supposed to think. We're supposed to be asking world-changing prayers. And it will, if you consistently do this, by the grace of God, this will alter your faith. This will alter how you think about the world. We're bored because we don't have a big enough vision. We're bored apathetic and lazy and all the rest because we don't look up enough to see that God, Jesus is saying, oh, no, no, no. Pray that God's kingdom will come and pray that with earnestness and your life will be radically different. You will be on fire for the Lord if he grants it to you. So things like this. 
Ephesians 3.20. I'll just more or less end with this. Paul says this, Now to him, to God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. God's able to do far more abundantly than what you ask or what you even think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's one of my... If there is a, such a thing as getting pepped up in your prayers, one thing I asked the Lord to do, it reminded me, I, I quote this verse to myself, he's actually able to do far more than I ask. And so I can't ask too big. You can't actually do that. It's impossible. He's able to do not just more, but more abundantly. And I can't even think big enough. He can do more than I can even think possible. And it's to him be the glory throughout every generation. And so you add time into the mix as well. My kids and their kids and their kids and their kids. Ten generations down, you can be praying that God be glorified in all those things. So, if you want a boring status quo, uh, barely in your Bible, you're at church once or twice a month, uh, you don't really talk with your friends about Jesus. Not really. You're scared to share your sin. You're scared for people to really know who you are. If you want that, if you want that status quo, which I know no one would say they want. But if you do, if you're okay with that, most certainly do not ask that his kingdom come. Most certainly do not think upon these things. Think upon the eternal beings around you right now and in your classes and your rooms and everywhere else. Certainly don't ask that. Don't pray like Jesus calls you to pray if you want to avoid that. But if you want a heart, and we do, we want this. If you're a Christian, you want this. Even if you only want to want it. Pray that prayer. Father, I don't want this. I can just recognize right now in my soul that there's like hardly a match of a flame of desire for this. Lord, give it to me. Give it to me. Give it to me, please. Psalm 86 says, Father, uh, Lord God, incline your ear to me and answer our prayer because I'm poor and I'm needy. That's the reason. So Lord, help me. So pray that. Ask for that and then ask, Lord, may your kingdom come. Increase in my thinking not a uh, recitation in your prayers merely. Oh, the kingdom come and you try to get your gun. You ask, Lord, delve, give me my prayer life that would delve into that and apply it and plead for it. That you could be on your face for an hour pleading nothing but prayers connected that his kingdom come. Amen. Let's, let me pray for us. Let me do it. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you that uh, you've preserved Jesus' prayer for us. You've preserved his teaching for us and how to pray. And Lord, I do again ask for your grace that you would take the little pieces of bread here um, of teaching and that you would create in us clean hearts, renewing us right spirits, Father, that you would incline your, uh, your ears to us and answer our prayer because we're poor and needy. And so, Father, at least I know myself now, many of us here don't experience this right now we don't experience it often a deep-seated passion and fire lord for your kingdom to come we hardly understand it and so father i pray that you would do more than we can ask more than we can think that you would grant knowledge lord that you would cause us to think upon these things and you would give us understanding Father, help us to think over these things that you might give us understanding of them and that you would increase in us a love of you lord a love that jesus has paid and only Jesus has paid for our sins, that he's died in our place, he's lived our life, um, 
Father, break in. We pray now. We ask that if there's any here, that you would break through the hardness, break through the callousness, break through the fear, break through the, um, uh, Father, the pain, the guilt that exists uh, in hearts, and that you would open hearts and minds to your glory, to joy, to the freedom of the gospel. We pray you would do this, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. You are listening to Equip Campus Ministries, where all our event audio, panel discussions, and sermons are hosted. For more details, visit EquipCampusMinistries.org. Equip Campus Ministries exists to equip college students to humbly proclaim, explain, and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that, in all things, all people might find joy in displaying the greatness of God's glory.